Value-based arrangements offer fair market value freedom, but numerous operational and implementation challenges exist. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today, we're going to be talking about a new and exciting exception and safe harbor under both the Stark Law and Anti-Kickback Statute that provides greater flexibility for compensation arrangements that focuses on value as opposed to volume. Uh, In previous episodes and in future episodes, we'll, we'll be talking under the Stark Law about the requirements for compensation that's directly tied to services being rendered. And in the fair market value episode, I talked about paying fair market value for the services that are rendered, whether they're employment arrangements or independent contractor arrangements. But now CMS has recognized that it would like to transition from volume compensation arrangements to value. And value has always been a focus on organizations, but the quandary has been how to compensate physicians to improve uh, the quality or other indicators of services that are not directly tied to productivity. Because under the Stark Law limitations, the compensation has to be fair market value for the services rendered, and typically you look at productivity. But here, the focus with value-based arrangements is on the outcome of the arrangement. And I want to emphasize at the beginning that because of the greater flexibility There is an operational challenge that I will be talking about, and I predict that there will be a lot of allegations and investigations regarding compliance with the value-based arrangements exception under the Stark Law and Safe Harbor under the anti-kickback statute. Uh, As typical with the Stark Law, it is very definitionally driven, and if you fail to comply with the strict definitions under the value-based arrangement exception, then you will fail with that exception, and then you'd have to comply with some of the other Stark Law exceptions. Now, the big issue with uh, value-based arrangements is the traditional fair market value requirements are not one of the components of the value-based arrangement exceptions. Therefore, bottom line is, 
that the compensation does not have to be fair market value. It still must be commercially reasonable with respect to general value-based arrangements, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But the whole liberty that we have with value-based arrangements is the fact that fair market value is not a requirement. And that's logical if the goal is to focus on the outcome as opposed to productivity. Now, CMS adopted the exception under the Stark Law, and the OIG developed the safe harbor under the anti-kickback statute. And they're fairly similar, but there are differences. And I'm going to be focusing primarily on the Stark Law exception, uh, but if you get into a value-based arrangement, you want to make sure that you do also look at the requirements under the anti-kickback statute. Uh, because, as I indicated, there are some differences. They're not great differences, but there still are some differences that could wind you into trouble if you make a mistake and show that there's an intent to enter into a value-based arrangement in order to increase referrals. Now, CMS in the regulations stated that their intent was that they believe that financial risk tied to the achievement or failure to achieve value-based purposes incense the types of provider behavior needed to transform the healthcare delivery system from a volume-based to a value-based. And let me provide one example. Let's assume that there is a value-based arrangement around diabetes. And the goal is, is to reduce the, the frequency of patients with diabetic conditions. Now, if this was a volume-based arrangement, then it really wouldn't matter from a physician's perspective uh, whether or not patients are striving not to go into a diabetic condition, you know, through exercise, through diet, etc. Because a physician, through volume, is going to be compensated. However, if you take the like a population of a thousand patients, and let's say twenty percent of that population is diabetic or pre-diabetic and you enter into a value-based arrangement where the goal was to decrease the percentage in that patient population from a 20% down to 10%, then there will be less volume for the physician to see, uh, to see patients because patients are getting better. And that should logically be the goal of healthcare, is the goal should be to achieve health versus providing services. Because why would I want to go and see a physician you know, 12 times a year when, you know, arguably I only need to see a physician once a year, but, you know, but for the diabetic condition, I would not have to see the physician as frequent or also experience as many drugs or medicine, insulin, et cetera, if I was healthy versus an, an unhealthy population. So there are three types of value-based arrangements, and this depends on the ability for the physicians to incur risk. There are, there are full financial risk models where the physicians are going to take a certain population and assume the full risk of providing services to that population. So like if you have a, a population that's focused on heart disease or cancer or indigent patients or Medicare or Medicaid patients, and as I indicated here through these examples, it could be focuses, focusing in on a disease state 
or payer status or in indigent patients, it's the lack of payer status. And if the physician group would, would assume the full responsibility for the services provided to that patient population, regardless of the cost, then that would be one exception. The other exception is meaningful downside financial risk, meaning that if the physicians do not achieve the indicators, then there is a meaningful downside risk to the compensation being paid. Now, what is meaningful? Meaningful under the Stark Law is at least 10% of the overall compensation to be paid. So the physicians, let's say, for example, that you're going to be paying on a per-patient basis, you know, $10 per month uh, per patient then if there is going to be a 10% downside risk, if the quality indicators are not achieved, then the physicians stand to lose $1 per patient per month. So that uh, 10% would have to kick in, and that's at least, so that would, would be a minimum. Then there's what I call the general value-based arrangements, and this is just you know entering into a compensation arrangement with physicians that are commercially reasonable to improve the value-based purpose. Like most of the Stark Law, the components under the value-based arrangements is very definitionally driven. And as I indicated at the very beginning is you need to qualify under each of the definitions, the requirements under each of those definitions. And if you do not, then you do not meet the value-based compensation arrangements. And if compensation is provided to the physicians, then th that compensation would have to meet another Stark Law exception, which usually would be tied uh, to productivity. So the first term is value-based activity. So a VBA, a value-based activity is either the provision of an item or service. So it's either you're providing services to a patient or you're providing other types of items, drugs or therapies, et cetera, or taking of an action or not taking of an action. So it has to be either the taking of an action, providing services, or not taking of an action, so refraining from taking an action. So like from a refraining from taking an action would be that if you have a certain patient population and most of that population uh, would have to have surgery for a particular disease state, then if through exercise, diet, other types of treatments, you could limit the amount of surgeries that are taking place for that patient population, then that would be the refraining from taking an action. Now, again, I'm going to paint all of this. All of this has to be medically necessary. So whatever actions or inactions have to be medically necessary, and there cannot be an untoward medical outcome to the patients that are you know, within the targeted patient population. So value-based purposes, there are four. The first is the coordination and management of care. Secondly is the improving care quality, so that's a quality component. Number three is reducing costs. And number four is transitioning the physicians from a volume to a value-based compensation arrangement. So with those four, uh, it has to meet at least one of those four purposes. So you can actually target a patient population and manage or coordinate that care. Now, under the anti-kickback statute, there's a greater definition of coordination and management of care uh, than under the Stark Law. 
And under the anti-kickback statute, it says that a coordination of management of care is the deliberate organization of patient care activities and sharing of information between two or more value-based enterprise participants. That's the first classification. The second classification, one or more value-based enterprise participants and the value-based enterprise or one or more value-based enterprise participants and patients that is designed to achieve safer more effective or more efficient care to improve the health outcomes of the target patient population. So in this case, with coordination of care, it really is looking at providing for a class of patients a better care, better contact or coordination of care. Next is improving of quality. There are a lot of quality indicators that are out there for various specialties, and I'm not going to go into all of those in this presentation, but as long as you can focus on indicators of quality uh, based upon the specialty, uh, then that would be one. Next one, and I think that a lot of providers are going to like this, is reduction of costs. I had one client who contacted me and said, well, where should we start? We're interested in these value-based arrangements, and what I would like to do is is get your recommendation, Bob, as to where do we start uh, looking. And I would say, well, let's uh, let's look at your high-cost patient uh, population. And so this client ended up targeting cancer oncology. And they, even though that that was a very large service line for this hospital system, if they achieve reduction of costs on a per patient basis on, on average, then that cost could be shared. Now, this sounds a little bit like gain sharing, and it sort of is, uh, but uh, the value-based arrangements are broader than just gain sharing because gain sharing was really the, only the reduction of costs. And so in, in the value-based arrangements, you can, in addition to reduction of costs, you can look at quality, coordination of care, and also transition from volume to value, which is the fourth category under value-based purposes. So as long as there is an attempt of the hospital or the employer or the entity that's paying to transition physicians purely from a work RVU or per hour basis into a quality or value outcome, then that would be one of the purposes of the value-based arrangement. So the core definitions are value-based activity and value-based purposes. Then the dependent definitions are three, value-based arrangement, value-based enterprise, and target populations. So I'm going to start with value-based arrangements. There are really three components for a value-based arrangement. It must provide at least one value-based activity that I spoke about previously. It must be for a target population, which I'll get to. And secondly, it must be between or among value-based enterprise and value-based enterprise participants. And this is key because uh, and I'm going to flip over now into the second dependent, which is value-based enterprise. Uh, I recently reviewed a contract where it said it was a value-based arrangement, and the uh, the entity that was being asked to provide certain compensation or services was not a value-based enterprise participant. 
And so in order for the exception to apply, you have to be a participant in a formal value-based arrangement. You can't just call it a value-based arrangement, and therefore it will be a value-based arrangement. You have to be an actual participant. So it needs to have at least two value-based participants. There must be an accountable person or entity over the finance of the operations, and there must be some form of governance. Now, this does not have to be a separate legal entity. could possibly be a committee that already exists, or you could form a new committee in order to uh, have oversight for that value-based enterprise. But it also needs to have either a person or an entity, so it could be the hospital, it could be a physician, it could be the physician practice that has the oversight of the value-based activities, and most importantly is the value-based population or the target population. So you want to make sure that, and this has to be clearly defined in writing, what is the target population. So it must have a legitimate and verifiable criteria. So some ways that you could do this is by the type of payment. It could be by a DRG or APC if we're talking about a hospital. It could be based upon a patient diagnosis, like a cardiac patient or cancer oncology patients, or like I mentioned previously, uh, patients with diabetes. It could be by zip code, and so you can define certain areas by zip code, or you also could be by patient status or payer status, like Medicare patients or Medicaid patients or indigent patients. Now, the trick here is to make sure that once you define the population that you don't have patients bleeding into the activities. So once you define the population, then the, then the activities can only surround the uh, the defined targeted patient population. And one thing to note uh, under the anti-kickback statute with a value-based enterprise participant, a patient for the patient services cannot be a participants in a value-based enterprise. And I guess the reason for that is that the anti-kickback statute covers uh, financial uh, incentives to Medicare beneficiaries. So based upon that, the exclusion of patients makes some logical sense. So to compare and contrast productivity arrangements versus value-based arrangements, you know, usually like if you have a WRVU productivity compensation model, then you're rewarding the physician for the performance of services or the rendering of services almost to the near exclusion of quality. Uh, as well as access could be a disincentive. So if you wanted to provide access to patients in a rural area because of the rural nature of that patient population, there may not be enough patient services under a productivity model in order to provide adequate compensation to physicians. So that's the reason why a value-based arrangement makes some sense. Doctors can drive the value. The focus is on quality, access, and care coordination. You can provide a compensation upside to the physicians, and you should be recalibrating the incentives once you achieve a certain level. Or you also could actually incentivize the physicians to maintain a certain quality level. Like if you're already in the top quartile based upon a quality indicator, then compensating physicians to remain at that quartile would be a legitimate criteria. And one of the things that I get questioned about quite a bit is how do you incentivize physicians for 
receiving like post-acute care services. Under a value-based arrangement, you can compensate a physician for right-sizing or having the services rendered at the right facility, like post-acute, whether or not the patient needs to remain in acute care hospital or can be discharged to a long-term acute care, a skilled nursing facility, home health, or hospice. So you can now provide financial incentives under a value-based arrangement in order to achieve the, the right location for the service that is required to be rendered to the patient. Now, a few comments before I get to the Captain Integrity Punch Points is that in order to comply with the safe harbor and also the exception for value-based arrangements, you're going to need to monitor the activities that are subject to the value-based arrangements, so the value-based activities. And this is going to require a lot of oversight of the paying entity, and here I'm going to use as an example the hospital, to make sure that, that it is monitoring the activities and the, the meeting of the criteria that is established. So if I want to compensate a physician group to be in the top quartile, then we need to have enough information and a basis to track the quality indicators to assess whether or not those physicians are meeting that quality indicator. So internal audit may need to be involved in order to review the capture of this information in order to provide the compensation under value-based activities. There's also a requirement to terminate or to modify objectives if the value-based activities are not meeting those objectives. Under the Stark Law, it's 30 days to terminate, or if you're just terminating one component, you still have another 90 days in order to, to continue the non-terminated indicators to see if you're going to achieve your value-based purposes. So it's, it's a little different under the anti-kickback statute, and there it's, it's 60 days and 120 days. So it's a little bit longer under the anti-kickback statute versus the Stark Law. And the other thing I want to point out that's a difference uh, under both the value-based uh, arrangements, safe harbor and exception, you can provide remuneration or compensation in cash or in kind. However, under the anti-kickback statute, if it's non-monetary, then the participants have to pay at least 15% of the value of the non-monetary item or service. So if you're like going to be providing management services uh, free of charge to a group of physicians, then the physicians have to pay 15% of those management services. And it does say under the safe harbor that you can use any reasonable accounting methodology in order to determine the value of the non-monetary compensation provided. So now it's time for our three Captain Integrity Punch Points. So Captain Integrity Punch Point number one is under value-based arrangements. Traditional fair market value requirements do not apply. So that's the greatest uh, thing about value-based arrangements. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two, continuous operational and performance oversight and documentation is needed. I cannot overstress that. Uh, because that is where most likely the fraud issues are going to arise if if the indicators or the quality indicators are not closely monitored and either awarded or not awarded depending upon the case 
And punch point number three, if you fail to meet any of the value-based arrangement exception requirements, then you must meet another Stark Law exception, like the employment exception, personal services arrangement exception, or fair market value exception. All of those exceptions requiring that the fair market value is for services rendered. So fair market value would become a component if you fail to meet one indicator of a value-based arrangement. And that's the reason why you really need to fully analyze your value-based arrangements, not only when you commence it, but during the operation of it to ensure compliance. So again, to recap, the, the three capital integrity punch points for value-based compensation arrangements. Uh, number one, traditional fair market value requirements do not apply. Number two, continuous operational and performance oversight and documentation is needed. And punch point number three, if you fail to meet any of the value-based arrangement exceptions, then fair market value becomes an issue. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.